Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. Well, that's it. We're done. This was probably my most intense New Year's resolution, and now that I'm done, now that it's January 1st of a pretty remarkable and memorable year, for a number of reasons, I'm just going to sit here and think about it. And so if you want to do that with me, you just keep listening. It's a good time. I'm going to go through all my books, and I'm not going to worry too much about maintaining some sort of schedule. And so, um, yeah, just going to reminisce and think about what all went on this year. Um, if you're down to hear that, then just keep on, keep on listening. And, and, and. Anyway, um, now, <laughs> what, what, a, what was this all about? So, um, my year was pretty much dominated by two things. One was a nonstop nightmare of worldwide proportions. And the other was this resolution that I had. Um, I resolved to pursue a passion with a passion. Um, how did that work out? I was watching the other day, uh, Sonny, the Cocoa Buffs, Cuckoo Bird. For those of you not in the know, Sonny is, well, he's cuckoo for Cocoa Buffs. He'd do anything to sate his puff, puffaholism. And for anyone who identifies with a title like, uh, ending in lick, like alcoholic, workaholic, chocoholic. Those suffixes um, are familiar to those watching Cocoa Puffs commercials. I was thinking about this, and it's the, the, the commercials are very depressing. Sonny's caught in an endless cycle of desire. Sonny's advertisements um, just basically include him trying to avoid the temptation of the chocolate kind of kicks cereal, and they inevitably end with some trigger that drives him into a state of soul death regarding Cocoa Puffs. When tempted by Cocoa Puffs, Sonny ceases to be a thinking, feeling, being capable of choice and becomes cuckoo. In his cocoa-induced madness, Sonny can do no other than relentlessly pursue that one last puff. Sonny has been plagued with much more than temporary madness. Cocoa Puffs have driven him on screen to grievous bodily harm, extensive property damage, imprisonment, and accidents involving everything from airplanes to cannons. And what bugged me the most is that he has repeated attempts at sobriety. So in his cogent and sober moments, Sonny must have recognized the harm inflicted by the Puff obsession. In fact, his harm must be greater than we actually understand by watching the commercials. His joy in Cocoa Puffs seems to be infinite. And so for Sonny to continuously avoid this infinite joy logically indicates an equal or greater infinite sadness. Sonny's compulsion is net loss. My passion and obsession this year uh, was not always healthy. And I've come to the conclusion that your obsessions need to be put into perspective. There's actually not such a thing as a positive obsession. I would challenge you to provide like one example. What passion would be worth the loss of everything else to one's life? You'd be like, oh, Hallmark. 
I just finished watching the 24 Hallmark movies they made this year. Um, Love, maybe. That certainly comes to mind in a year of solitude, but what could possibly satisfy a fixation on love? No being can provide enough. And if you obsess over somebody, they're probably more inclined to not love you at all. And why is that? Because when you obsess over something, you're willing to drop everything else to obtain that thing. You could lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, extort. I mean, that's, that's, that's cuckoo, right? It's the kind of cuckoo that, you know, say you're like addicted to heroin or something. You lose your family, you lose your house, you lose your job, you're freezing at night, you're baking in the daylight, and someone asks you like, hey, wouldn't you like to stop doing heroin? And you'd be like, no. Like, <laughs> all this is worth it. I mean, heroin must be pretty good, right? Well, so, okay, obsession, right? Well, let's just obsess on something noble or truth or heroic. We could even obsess over the broad scope of virtue itself. Oh, we pick uh, all these good things from all these good traditions. There we go. We could obsess with making everything right for everyone. Well, you'd find the world very resistant to the idea and you'd know this if you've been listening to me that like sometimes I'll be telling you, oh, you got to do something. And you'll be like, oh, I actually don't want to do that. <laughs> I actually know how to run my life myself. Thank you very much. And when you find the world resistant to being made perfect in your eyes, you'll actually end up hating the world for standing in your way. You'll find your personal moral code clashing with the nuance of reality and the resulting perception of failure will haunt you like any unfulfillable obsession. I mean, I ran into this a couple times this year. A couple people, you know, we were trying to help out with our church and sometimes I would just be like resentful. Like, oh, why, why aren't you fixing your life? Like, we're trying to help. You, it turned into this perverse dislike of someone that we were ostensibly uh, sacrificing for. It's weird, right? That's not how it should be. Being obsessed, it'll never leave you calm It'll never get you contentment. It'll never ever be anything but restless and miserable. And even an obsession with calm and peace provokes an unfulfilled desire. And that's like why all your self-care regimen this year, it leaves yourself with more cares than ever. You have, by the very act of seeking happiness, taken on yet another passion you have inevitably failed to fulfill. Good job. That's a problem, right? We have... Not too much control over what drives us cuckoo. Despite all our discipline, we inevitably feed ourselves to desire, the process of which grows the eater and shrinks the eaten. And no one chooses to do what they don't want to do, actually. So if someone is going to do something you don't want them to do, you have two options. One option is to punish them. And that's clumsy. And the second they think they won't be punished, they'll do the thing you don't want them to do. But there's another way. One can change a person's behavior not by punishing desires, but by replacing them. You can convince a person that their desire stands in the way of some greater good, some greater pleasure. And that's what these resolutions and these goals are all about, right? You convince yourself or someone else that they can, by foregoing happiness, gain bliss. But what goal or obsession could possibly fulfill? Only a goal that's simultaneously unfinished and yet inevitable, because... If your goal ends in, you know, defeat, then you're going to hate it. You're going to hate it. But 
if your goal is already finished. If your goal is to just, oh, I'll just, I'll just keep being who I be and I'll just keep on getting through the weeks. That's not good either. You got to find some movement in the grand scheme of life that will inevitably be victorious and at the same time allows you to push toward victory. So let's apply that to Author's Dozen. So Author's Dozen, I wanted to write 12 books in 12 months. Now, if my goal this year would to be write, uh, you know, writing 12 great books, I would have fallen pretty short. Several of my books were bad. The remainder were okay or good, but not great. And most of the books face no future prospects so far, seeing as I can barely give them away for free right now. And what that amounts to is some mysterious level of uh, talent and marketing that I just haven't breached yet. And that's all right. And the reason that's all right is that I was only somewhat passionate for a goal that was unachieved and unachievable. And again, we have little control over what we desire, but I don't want to feed that obsession, which will only lead to bitterness. And the way to refuse desires is not to punish, but to replace. So most New Year's Eve resolutions boil down to punishment, really. Diet, exercise, abstaining from this and that. I actually suggest you replace unwanted desires with wanted desires. Resolve to feel better in your body rather than resolving to lose X pounds. Resolve to something you can reasonably control rather than something you can't. So like, resolve to meet new people rather than resolving to be married this year or something. Resolve to fill your days with some good thing, lest the day succumb to evil. But that only returns us to the problem. Even good desires either end in failure or succeed and prove their inadequacy, right? That, that, delicious, uh, that delicious pie that you made for Christmas, right? Now it's rotting and it's a safety hazard. And if it's not already digested and disgusting, it's, it's, all, it's all decaying. That's just how it is. So I suggest that you put one desire above all others, that you desire the inevitable victory of good and see all of your actions in that victory. I suggest you recognize a good that is simultaneously unfinished and inevitable and desire only to float in the stream that beats ceaselessly toward victory. And that's really a big, you know, statement to make, a really grandiose one, but yet when submerged in the stream, you feel like you're part of something big. And simultaneously, only good can survive in that stream. Passions that go against the stream, they have to be abandoned for those that go with the flow. Your obsession is limited and yet magnified by the current, and like a current, your obsession becomes part of the unlimited whole. Your desire can't be fulfilled, and yet it leads downstream. Your passion comes up short, and yet your passion is taken up and made infinite and infinitely valuable in this continuum. And that'll turn the bitterness of any shortcoming into sweetness. And my writing goal? I didn't measure up in a number of ways. But seen in the tapestry, my thin strand leads from my strand to another strand to another strand, and it leads to victory. 
Does your resolution help or hinder a path toward a good world? When your desire inevitably falls short, are you willing to look past your limited frustration in order to see the value in every good step? So submerge yourself into the great resolution before any small attempts at resolutions on your own. And it's the only way that I finished my task, technically. It's the 8% of Americans who actually follow through on resolutions for New Year's. It's the acknowledgement that defeat never means total defeat, but the victory always means victory. All right, that's the preaching part over. Now just sit back, relax, and commiserate slash understand me. Um, there is a lot to cover this year, but what did I learn? What did I, you know what? Let's break it up book by book by book. And we'll start with the first book. It's named Hollow. And you heard my sort of breakdown earlier in the podcast about like how I constructed this thingy or whatever. And for the first few months, I thought for sure, this is my best book. Oopsie poopsie, I spent a lot of time on something at the beginning and I sort of plotted it out and I actually had something good going on there and I was like, oh, I accidentally did my best work first. I probably should have waited to release that until after all the sort of middling things. But the further I get away from it, um, the more I have come to realize that um, this is probably also my most basic book. Um, it's got a lot to say for sure. It's got some really cool like ideas and plots that could be expanded. It's got a really cool world. Um, the problem ends up being though that this is the kind of book that I've written before. It was definitely the least experimental um, and I might have learned the least from it. Um, I'm not sure. One thing that I did end up realizing is that there's a there's a kind of flow state that I enter um, that I really that's it's pretty much why I write. I show up every day and some days it's just work and other days it's really the best. And so I I've been trying for the rest of the year to sort of like recapture that. Um, and there are certain things that enter me into that flow state. Um, and I think that the biggest things that I've keep, keep coming across is heightened emotion, whether physical or mental or spiritual emotion. Um, that really gets my blood going. I love catharsis and I love writing it and it just lets me spew um, all the emotions that we all contain. And I really love that. And I really love going back and reading over it. And, you know, there are some scenes in here where people are in dire physical straits or um, they're breaking down and, you know, going after each other <laughs> in uh, verbal joustings. And that's just what I love. So if you like my work and you want to continue to follow it, just get ready for a lot of drama and a lot of, uh, you know, squeamish difficulties or whatever. Um, 
This book also starts off uh, my theme this year of ultraviolence. Um, another thing I get into is, again, heightened emotions, but also uh, heightened physicality. Um, that really, I enjoy writing that quite a bit. Um, often that looks like, and this is a very Protestant of me, but it it's less uh, sensual and more like, oh, physically demanding and uh, Arnold Schwarzeneggery. Oh boy, I really hope that didn't sound like what it sounded like to me. What I meant to say was Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque. It's so hard to say his name in a way that doesn't sound weird to me. Anyway, um, what I mean is that uh, violence, just pretty shocking and uh, visceral violence. Um and maybe I need to kind of back off of that. Um, the reason that I think that gets me into a good writing flow state um, is that there are moments in my life that have involved sort of physical violence, and those just like stand out to me as maybe the most significant things that happen to me as a body. And I enjoy that. Um, it's, I, I'm not saying that like, I am a sucker for punishment or sadomasochistic or anything like that. What I'm saying is heightened physicality brings about heightened mental states and emotions for me. And so to shy away from that and to just like ignore, um, those bits of the human experience is really tragic for me. And I would be basically robbing myself of uh, one of the things that gets me into writing. And I have to ask myself, is that of value to people? Um, is the sort of body horror and uh, the massive uh, altered states that can come across uh, when you're in physical difficulty? Or is that something I would like to contribute to the world? Well, there's another way of going about it. And I think that I explore in the book, which is just the joy of certain physicalities, um, the levels of joy that can be had by, you know, pulling off some really cool trick or being a part of some really awesome contest. Um, I think that that's really valuable. Is it important to me to depict violence uh, in a way that is anti-violence. Well, certainly, I think that violence is bad. Hot take there by Paul Yoder. Um, and I think that the glorification of violence often skews away from what I'm trying to do. So what I mean by that is that it's depicted as something that is extreme, but also uh, kind of wonderful and glorious. Um, what I sort of attempt to do with my heightened states of violence is to really make people sick. And not just sick in like the gore porn way, but in the way that, um, I mean, like that a life is just snuffed out and, you know, somebody's entire being and childhood and, you know, lost loves and all these wonderful things that are involved with being a human that they can be just snuffed out like that. 
I think that that's something worth thinking about. It's a cosmic horror that I think we need to embrace when we think about, you know, casual violence. Another thing that really sticks out to me about writing this book is my tendency toward a very modern American male view of romance. And um, one thing that is a little difficult is that we do, we live in a society, guys. We, we live in a society. And um, the society is one that is very focused on the possession of human beings. And by that, I mean that we live in a culture that is obsessed with uh, physical beauty, with status, with all these things that can sort of be um, possessed by a partner. Um, and so one difficulty I have is that I tend to write um, characters in romances as these really wonderful things that you would want to possess. And that's gross. I do that for both sides of the relationship, I think. Um, and I won't let myself off the hook for that. However, I do end up making the men and women involved in romances into these sort of uh, superhuman figures who you would be like really proud to have as your partner and you could put them up on a shelf and show them to everyone and like, oh, isn't, isn't this person, don't they reflect good on me? And that's the air we breathe when we live in our culture. Again, not trying to let myself off the hook, but why be the same and boring like everybody else? Why not try to create romances where the characters are both very average and normal and flawed in not so interesting ways like oh he always leaves up the toilet seat what a jerk because the sort of superhuman standard we set for romances in our culture are a not satisfying and b not realistic and so trying to get away from that that is unfortunately what ended up happening with the romance in this book it is very swoony. It makes me like love both people involved in the romance. Um, and it is, I don't know, there's something about that. And I, I, I won't say that the high standard to which we hold one another in romance is something that is entirely evil. It certainly is not. It is important that we um, enjoy one another and that we are excited and you know entertained by the ways that human beings can be and you know there is a level of goodness in that it's it's when that becomes iconic and uh emblematic that things become difficult so i don't know not sure how to fix that but there there was there was definitely some stuff to chew on after i wrote this book um in the middle of it, it was pretty standard. Um, I did enjoy, uh, <laughs> I did enjoy parts of writing this book where, you know, I could look into, um, the sort of technology and time period and, uh, settings that they were in. And, um, I don't know. I just enjoy that stuff. It's like you get to create your own little world, 
It's like you're a god. I am a god to you, hollow book. I mean, that's a power trip. That's a good time. All right, moving on. Run, Prometheus. So, this is a book about computers. I know very little about computers. I have standard knowledge. I have probably the knowledge that you have got, you listener. I mean, you managed to download a podcast. Congratulations. That is that is high tech. Um, what I learned from Ron Prometheus is that what I find cool and entertaining is very different from what other people find cool and entertaining. And sometimes in a good way. So what do I mean by this? This was probably the most liked and commented on book that I wrote. Why is that? Well, for me, Run Prometheus was very much uh, a, a... It wasn't like paint by numbers uh, from the book Frankenstein, but it was taking some pretty heavy inspiration. Um, this is a book that was uh, very difficult to write. I did not have a good plan going into it and sort of had to think on my feet. And I think the fact that the book turned out different than I originally thought it would made the book disappointing to me. And in fact, most people came into the book with expectations that were not uh, the ones that I had originally set out for, and they really liked it. So I need to step back and realize that the... Uh, the joys and goals that I have in writing are not always the same as the readers. That doesn't mean I abandon the things that I find joyful. However, I need to recognize that just because I am not like on fire and psyched for something doesn't mean that other people won't be. And so to deny someone your work because it is not up your alley is a little weird. And it would be um, a disservice to your readers to just say, oh, this isn't for me, and so I'm going to deny it to everybody else. All right, so Run Prometheus, it's about this girl. She creates a supercomputer, and it is pretty much doing good stuff for the world. Um, the catch is that the supercomputer is... Uh, the the only goal of the supercomputer is to make this its creator happy. Now, luckily for us, the creator ends up being a pretty, you know, according to our standards, a decent person um, who desires to wipe out disease, who desires to end world hunger, who, you know, desires to do some generally uncontroversially good stuff. And what I think people gravitated towards in this novel are two big philosophical ideas that keep the novel chugging along. Um, the first idea is that what makes us happy is not necessarily good. So that was what I was going into the book with is like, oh, you know, in some deepest, darkest part of her heart, you know, she does want to murder someone and get away with it. Or, you know, she does want to obtain all of her um, greedy desires uh, at the cost of someone. And this computer is so powerful that it could even get that stuff for her and make her think that it didn't cost anyone anything. I went into the book wanting to write about that because, again, the situation of the powerful, 
which includes most Americans, uh, but especially includes the, you know, top percentiles of Americans, is that when you gain tons and tons of power, you are shielded from the difficulties that your decisions make. So let's say you're Beyonce, you're, you know, wanting to empower uh, young girls, blah, blah, blah. It probably never even reaches your ears that your company is employing sweatshop workers. It probably never even occurs to you that you are involved in some toxic or downright criminal enterprises. I am speaking into a microphone, into a computer, onto your uh, personal phone device of choice, and all of these involve, at some point along the line, probably slave labor, or the equivalent thereof. And we just don't think about these things. They are not right in front of us. We are shielded from the consequences of our actions, and therefore we continue to contribute to a good deal of the suffering in the world. And so I wanted to explore that. That would be a fun thing. The second though, and probably the bigger philosophical idea that ended up being a part of the plot of the book is that of authenticity. So again, we can all struggle and have disagreements about like, oh, you know, should I have a Prius or should I uh, should I shop for local honey instead of trusting honey corp or whatever. I mean, we could spend the rest of our lives just trying to live the most ethically that we could and we would still miss stuff. And that's the bigger philosophical quandary is that how do you know that you are acting with people's best interests in mind? How do you know that the person who is getting you your coffee is actually not skirting some sort of like international trade sanctions? And how do you know if your Amazon package isn't actually funding some heinous dictatorships or regimes? Or is it funding some kind of like lobbying and disintegration of democracy? Like even if you had an all-powerful thing that could ostensibly meet all your needs, wouldn't you always worry that it was a at least partially evil being? I mean, this is not something that necessarily keeps me up at night, but that's the problem. My government is almost certainly involved in some sort of black site torture as I speak, and there's very little I can do to gain that knowledge. And yet, I have to be involved in that government and try to make it as good as I can. And the government isn't even all-powerful, you know? Do I give my assent to something that uh, is more like the wet dreams of the Chinese Communist Party, where they'd have a facial recognition stick on every street corner and they would be able to credit social credit score everybody in the world and just dance us around like puppets? Or we don't even have to go that far. What about Facebook or Apple or any number of these companies who are trying to get microphones and cameras into our houses? I mean, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but this is in the back of our minds all the time. And I think that's why this book resonated. I think that the idea of something that is beyond us even if it serves us, we can never really be sure about its intentions. It could always be fooling us. And the book 
eventually answers that question with one of the only things we can really know. And how do you turn that certainty into certainty for other people? I don't know. But the book eventually did become about someone who was trying to discover the ethical nature of the god that she had created, and the inability of one person to pass that lesson on to others. Did she succeed? Did she fail? We don't know. We just kind of have to trust. And one of the difficulties is that we are now creating structures in our society who will reach this sort of godlike power at which point it will be impossible for us to hold them accountable. And at that point, we'll just have to trust that, oh, they have our best interests in mind. Um, is that time now and yet? I don't know. But now is the time to try to hold these things accountable. Now is the time to not just submit to the casual conveniences that these large structures provide, you know, governments and tech companies and all these things that threaten to become too big to control. Now is the time to try to question them and to um, bring them under control before they get too big. Why am I talking about all this? Why am I on my conspiracy theory rant? Well, there's some reason why this story, which did not resonate for me at first, has become the important and good one in the minds of a lot of people. It is not my normal fare. It is not the sort of obvious adventures that I usually end up writing. Um, which follow a pretty basic formula of like, oh, go get the thing, come back, having changed. Congratulations. You've written the story that resonates with all of humans across all of time and therefore has been written all the time. Is that why this book bugged me? Because it didn't fit into my traditional formula of what was and wasn't a good book. I think it's important to ask those questions. I think it's actually important to compromise your initial artistic merit in order to discover what it is that people like about your work, um, what people respond to. And you're not changing in a way that is artistically inauthentic. You're changing because there is something in your work that is beyond you, and you need to recognize and perhaps serve that thing. Siren Deep. Uh, this is a book that I wrote about some friggin' they got they got magic powers, but it's from another dimension, so it's science. That's how science works. You know that quote that everyone says was like sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that lets people so off the hook. It really does create a sense in which, like, you can just write magic and then science it away with some explanation that makes literally no sense. That's why science fiction and fantasy are so often paired together, because literally the only difference between them is the feeling. And so the tone of this book that I wrote is kind of smack dab between fantasy and science fiction. The way that I liked to look at it was that things got less sciencey and more fantastical the further down you went into this wilderness that I set up. 
If you didn't read the book, it's basically about a giant shell floating in space. Everyone sort of wants to get at it and get to the middle of it where there's some special prize. And the middle is sort of where all magic happens. And that's why people think like, oh, I'll just be able to go there and magically get what I want. Um, that's going to keep coming up because I stole that story element for the book I'm working on now. More on that later. Now, one of the most interesting elements that was a teaching moment for me and actually more interesting in the book are the recurring themes that I sort of kept coming back to and kept coming back to for the entire run of Author's Dozen. And the first and most important is power. The worldview expressed in almost every one of my novels is that if you get power, you can get anything. And so therefore, nothing is better than power. However, the more power you get, the more it rules you and dictates what you do. You are constrained by power because you need to keep the power because the power is what gets you what you want. Most of what these characters go through in the novel Siren Deep is they're, they're trying to get this power and it's so powerful that if you get it, you could change almost everything. And therefore, almost anything is permitted to get to this source of power. No evil you commit could possibly outweigh the good you could do if you get that power. Um, however, I do a pretty good job in the novel of kind of getting at what I think my next book is going to get at. Number one, almost nobody achieves that power, and so won't you feel so silly when you've done all this evil to get at the power and you don't even get it? Number two, that getting the power does not solve the problems you think it'll solve. In fact, it may create more problems than you began with. And this book also raised another issue for me, which is that there is very little shown of these people in their everyday lives. I love to dive directly into the most interesting moment in someone's existence. And what you lose with that sometimes is that it's just like, oh, this person only exists in an adventure. It's like, I, I wish we could see Captain America just like sitting around having a, having a donut, maybe like have an extended conversation about the donut because to me he's just action guy he's just the guy who fights all day long and lives in heightened states of physical and mental and spiritual emotion it's the same thing with the characters in this book they're just always being a big fight and they have the swords and they smack and they get the thingy and they go for it and there's really not a lot of realized character traits outside of that. And I think I lose something in that. And I think it draws undue attention to adventure in a way where we don't really get to understand that these are human beings and that all of life is not one grand thriller. So yeah, I learned something. Hooray! Speaking of which, Night of the Mayfly. This one does have just some quiet moments where people are people and they don't really do anything. There's a couple folks who just go on a date. There's whole characters who their existence is just totally normal and cool. 
I talked a lot about this book with uh, my cousin, Austin. It was great. We talked a lot more about the social commentary of this book. However, one thing we didn't really get into in this book, and one thing that I really enjoy about writing this book, is that it sits within a certain uh, conversation with the grand scope of literature. I don't mean, of course, that this book is somehow like, you know, oh, it's like Wuthering Heights or whatever. What I mean is that I really enjoy how this book plays off of prior reading knowledge. Um, so if you've ever read a detective story or, you know, some sort of noir or L.A. based thing... And that's certainly not to say that this book is a parody of whatever, but you will get more out of it if you are engaged with the broader culture. And that includes noir movies, and that includes noir radio dramas or whatever you're into. And this is probably my biggest problem with modernity, is that we tend to see ourselves outside of that stream I was talking about, earlier, that greater tapestry into which we're all woven. The horrific consequences of our individualistic culture that leads us down a really dark path of just trying to be our own thing and trying to be outside of the grand scope of literature and art and all these things. A lot of thought and research went into this book, but a lot of it just was stuff that I learned about earlier in my life and in my career just because I was interested in it. A lot of this comes from just reading books for fun or just engaging with the broader culture and world around me. Trying to be at a remove from that and seeing your book as the only thing that matters, I mean, that's where we lose people. You know, you're trying to make your book all things to all people because it's the beginning and ending of history. That's seriously, I've seen that happen so many times. And it's too much to handle. And you feel like you have to explain every last thing. And what I think this book taught me is that it's perfectly fine not to have to explain to everyone every last thing that's happening and sort of make everyone understand what cultural things you're drawing from, or, you know, the footnotes kind of writing, where you are constantly pausing to remind everyone how smart you are and how good your story is and everything. Sometimes it's okay to just let people come with the knowledge they come with. Well, what does that mean for Night of the Mayfly? I just gave the world some room to breathe. I allow you to come to the book with some prior knowledge of animals, some prior knowledge of noir, some prior knowledge of just big political corruption things in general. And I trust people to understand that I'm not trying to speak to all things at all times. And this is one of the first books I got away from this sort of like world-altering consequences that seem to pervade every story nowadays where it's like, oh, I must begin and end this universe because it's the biggest thing that's ever happened and I am so important. Like, it's okay just to write a book that is kind of just a side mission, you know? It's a tangential story that 
does not shatter the planet. I don't know. That's just my personal hang-up that I was able to overcome with this book. Alright, we're circling back. We're getting back into the books, but let me say really quick. It is just really cool to do an inventory of the year and figure out what it is that happened and what I learned. We so often just tend to live in this moment and in, you know, our, our vision and scope is only limited to the past week and the week ahead. And I think it's really cool just this specific time of year and all the time to look back at your past and think about it in a way that recognizes that you are the same and a different person and that who you are this week is more or less defined by who you were a year ago. I think that's pretty fun. All right, moving on to Ghost Town, baby. All right, Ghost Town, um, they stole this concept uh, for the movie Soul. I, I, I know it, and I am... Right now, you can hear me walking up to Disney's door and making a knock on the Pixar's... Oh, hello, it's me, Mr. Pixar. Hey, you stole my idea. You stole Ghost Town and you made it into the movie Soul. I know that animation takes a very long time, so somehow you looked at this and you said, we're going to make a movie out of it and it's going to be very touching. Oh, gee, you caught me. You caught me red-handed. I... I know Disney has never done anything unethical before, uh, so please, we, we want to keep you quiet. Here's a million bucks. Okay, my silence cannot be bought. I will take the million dollars, but I'm going to talk... I'm going to broadcast this on my podcast. Oh, no! I got them good. Anyway, this book is very similar to soul where i don't know you'd start to think about like oh what is it like to have a body and maybe inhabit someone else's body they took it all from me and now this story is useless no it was fun it was fun because it was a lot of me arguing with myself which is what a lot of writing is it's just I don't know. It's it's always funny to me to pause in the middle of a book and say, one person is writing both of these characters. What's up? <laughs> like, does the person think that one of them is right or one of them is wrong? And does the person, like, even give the other person a correct voice? Or are they just setting up a straw man for them to knock down? And that's what writing is. And that's why philosophical texts are very difficult for me, because when Camus writes a novel, everyone who is against his personal point of view is written by Camus. And so he is setting up arguments that he knows he can knock down. It's, it's not fair. And so my, my, my thought going into this book was, okay, I'm going to have my character sort of hash out the meaning of life with everybody, you know, looking back from a point of view where everybody dies from some sort of pandemic. In the novel, I mean. In the novel. Anyway, because of the unique point of view from a ghost living in the post-human world, I thought it would be really cool to have some conversations about that, but... 
it's so pretentious. Like, it's that Pilgrim's Progress, uh, I don't know, it's that thing where, you know, you have a character just go and have, like, conversations with people all along the way, and the alchemist, he's... He's, uh, he meets all these people and he shuts them down with facts and logic. And it's just a completely one-sided equation. The character who we are supposed to understand as objectively correct always wins. And even when they don't win, they just do. And that's the game. And as I started to write that, I sort of started thinking about like the solipsistic worldview that that entails. I thought that it would be very interesting to create a character who's basically secretly arguing with themselves the whole time, and all the bad opinions are both held by them and held by an external entity. Um, it's more in line with what I think an author is doing when they're writing a book, which is arguing with themselves and having two points of view, one of which eventually wins over because we're not schizophrenic. So far as you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't talk to myself in the voice of Pixar man. Definitely not. Anyway, another thing I learned from this book, besides the obsession with myself, is that when you are trying to write a big philosophical text, you better come correct, you know? If you reach the end of your book and you have something to say, it better be said heck well. It better be said, you better have some really special way of displaying what it is that you're arguing for. Um, I think it was a pretty lackluster landing uh, in this book. I think that it ends on a note of uh, joy and hope, uh, that the descriptions themselves don't really earn. Why do I say that? Because the, the end point is essentially heaven and forsaking heaven to go and help someone. Um, this is a difficult thing to write. Um, a description of heaven is actually not even found in the Bible. That's how like complicated it must be. <laughs> But even if you don't, like, subscribe to that belief system, well, like, utopia, you know? You try to write a utopia in 500,000 words rather than, like, two pages, which is what I gave myself. You're gonna leave people thinking, like, oh, is that it? Really? Anyway, that was the biggest lesson. Don't go for a shot unless you think you can do it. All right, moving on. Miserable Company. This is a comedy book. I'm a funny boy. Um, beyond the 15 layers of irony I just displayed there, I think that uh, it's a pretty fun book. And it has some funniness. And I'm doing it again. I'm being ironic. And why am I being ironic? Because I hate being bad at stuff. And so I'd much rather do something ironically. And then if I'm bad at it, then it was on purpose like dancing. Oh my gosh, I wish I was great at dancing, but I can only ironically dance because if I'm ever bad at dancing, people will think that I was trying to be good and they'll hate me. Or uh, same with like basketball. I just can't play basketball. If I ever 
play basketball, people will know that I'm just a failure. And therefore, I can't even start to practice because then people would see and I would see and I would know I'm bad. All right. So this book was about conquering that fear. I was explicitly trying to be funny and there is nothing less funny to people than someone trying to be funny and failing. And I think that I did at some points. I think that there were definitely parts of this uh, comedic take on the fantasy tropes of the big brave hero and his merry band of merry people. Um, The titular or eponymous, whatever, miserable company are a group of four people who are pretty fleshed out in a way they wouldn't be if the main character was still there. Um, However, in my conversation with Chandler Birch, he correctly pointed out that I'd still spent quite a bit of time with the main character who I was trying to get rid of. Um, And that's just how it goes because I did a bad job, but I learned and that's what it's all about. But it does make you think, you know, why did I gravitate back toward the, you know, big hero of the story rather than focusing on the people who I was trying to drag us toward. Well, number one, I didn't give these people, you know, great motivation. Um, I simply needed them to do what the plot needed them to do, and then we could have the story. And that's not right. You know, you need to, if, if you are going to come up with the plot and then the characters afterward, you need to create characters who are very invested in whatever it is they're going to be doing. Um, Instead, I just made them kind of cool takes on what they were doing, and I just don't think that worked out. However, there's a much deeper lesson that this sort of failure that I had um, stems from, and that is, once again, the fact that I was not willing to swing for the fences, because if you fail, then people know how bad you are. And I think that definitely I was trying to step outside of my comfort zone with this book. However, there is still the coward in me and there's still the part in me that was not willing to be as brave as this novel might have required me to be. And there are elements of the book where if I were to rewrite it today, um, I think that I would be willing to get a little bit more meta with it and willing to get a little bit more... Um, unorthodox in a way that I thought would be kind of cringy and, you know, would make people judge me, but that the story actually did require. So what I mean by that is that some of my impulses were like, oh, that joke is even slightly lame. I must eliminate it. Or, oh, that character motivation is a little bit like, oh, people might judge me for, you know, bringing that up or whatever. And I just didn't do it. And I think that the fear of being bad negates the possibility of ever being good. If you let that fear cripple you, when are you going to be able to practice? You know, if you have a, um, if you have something that you really do want to do, create a safe space for yourself where you can do that and fail and not hurt anybody. Um, that was another you know, thing that I talked about with with, uh, with Chandler is that there are some things in this book and in other books where 
if you just throw it out, you know, you take the Facebook approach and just like, oh, move fast and break things. Like sometimes those things you break are things that are valuable and things that are like human relationships. And so I think what would have been wiser in this book is to really go for it, really do something wild and crazy, wilder and crazier, um, and just not show it to anybody. And that is antithetical to some of the things I've said in the past with this podcast, which is just like, try it out and like shoot it out there or whatever. However, knowing that you will inevitably show it to someone will make you more reticent to do some of the more um, outrageous parts of writing that you might have done otherwise. So on that note, Godforsaken is a book that is bad. It was bad because I was trying to do something uh, and I knew that I was going to put the book out there. And so I veered away from the cool and outrageous and interesting option and into the very safe and boring and kind of John Green-esque option. Nothing against John Green. I just turned a novel that was supposed to be about this big adventure versus the gods or whatever and turned it into a like typical summer camp uh snotty teenagers you know saying uh literature at each other and i discovered with godforsaken that i am really bad at writing about a bunch of kids just interacting at a school which really bars me from most uh, forms of YA literature. Um, I've discovered that I'm never going to get to write Harry Potter because I just cannot stand groups of children and people like explaining to one another like, oh, this is how our world works because we are in a classroom where we teach these things. <laughs> that sort of like diddling around that most like... I would say like two thirds of each Harry Potter book is where it's like, oh, we went to this concert and oh, we went to the class where we got into the hijinks. It's just so boring to me and I hate it. So some of these books are little more than just like things not to do in the future, little stumbling blocks to avoid in the coming books. However, I had a pretty dang good book called Ironclad Nocturne. Now, there were some flaws, for sure, and I am actually in the process of fixing up those flaws, which, I don't know, maybe this podcast will continue in a way that is not so obtrusive to my life. And maybe it'll be called Author's Dozen Revised? And it'll be about me revising some of these texts and taking them to the next level. Guitar. All right, back to Ironclad Nocturne. I took some of the best elements from the novel Siren Deep and incorporated them with this sort of vision that I had several years ago. Um, and it was so clear in my head. I'm not talking about like some sort of mystical thing, but there was just a an idea in my head of this machine planet. Um, and just the thought of human beings in that planet um, being part of the machinery. Ooh, metaphor. Um, But 
it's only recently that I discovered what that metaphor would be. Um, oh boy, I just want to spoil the big surprise for you guys, but um, essentially in the world of Ironclad Nocturne, uh, human beings are the main power source. So um, your soul is uh, something that you know provides power for the machine. You can either use it yourself or more likely sell it to other people. Um, and the government is just a big organizing force for keeping the soul energy in check. Um, and because people have so much power, and because the power is uh, somehow related to the human body, um, there are some cool fights you can have, and you can start to beat people up with the power armor. Guys, I did something real nerdy. I I went online, I made a mock-up of my main character in a digitized form, and I ordered a figurine of her. <laughs> um, this is a figurine that is very small, and it was very cheap, and it's just a 3D printed whatever. And it's a person in armor who wants to punch you. And why did I do that? <laughs> um, because I'm 30 years old and I can do whatever the heck I want. Um, but also because this idea of a human being who is uh, using the intrinsic human power uh, to do cool things is really fun to me. And I like the idea of a kind of neo-feudalism where people, you know, essentially do sell their souls um, to one another in order to gain, you know, rewards. Um, I think that's a really cool idea. And I'm so excited and I can't tell you what the surprises are, but I will tell you um, that the lines between fantasy and sci-fi continue to blur for me in this novel and to the point where I just don't think that the two genres exist. I think that they're one thing and I think that it's just fantastical. That's what we'll call it from here on out. The fantastical genre. Anyway, this uh, sci-fi fantasy fantastical book um, is again another quest for power. Um, however, I sort of ironed out what I was trying to say in the novel Siren Deep and was therefore able to build the world from the ground up to serve that central idea. Also, characters. Mmm. Ah, oh, delicious characters in this one. Okay. So we got, we got some people who are, uh, you know, different in ways that they wouldn't be here on Earth. So we have this kind of like intersex uh, monk. We have uh, genetically modified human beings. We have uh, people in magical power armor and, you know, negating certain uh, sexual differences that we have in our culture. Man, I just think it's a heck of a lot of fun. Um, and I think that my characters benefit from being kind of outlandish according to our culture. So we have women who have uh, the sort of traditionally um, toxic masculine traits, um, just like, oh, yeah, I'm the toughest. You're not going to fight and kick your butt. And that's cool. And I'm cool because I could do that. We've got the kind of like 
upwardly mobile characters, you know, the the characters who hitch their happiness upon a kind of apprenticeship. Um, man, I don't know. I just like these these people that I came up with, and I think they've all got goals in a way that people in Siren Deep didn't. However, the exception to that being kind of my main character? And so I am, again, rewriting the book. And my last novel that I wrote this year was just kind of a continuation of this novel. And guys, it's so good, I can't even begin to describe how good it is. And maybe that just makes me a bad author, because describing is my job. Okay, one more failure and one more success, and that'll round out the novels. And that's not to mention the upcoming nonfiction book called Author's Dozen, the nonfiction book, working title. Anyway, the failure. I'm going to talk about the C.S. Lewis book. Um, man, I reread all the Narnia books, and I had this whole idea, and I was like, oh boy, here's a novel that C.S. Lewis explicitly told us to write, and it's full of characters that he came up with and worlds that he came up with. Oh boy boy, I was bored. Oh boy, oh boy. Like, I don't know. The whole fun of this thing is just to be able to build my own playground to play on. And yo, it's so easy to do. You can just make up a place and you're like, oh, I'm in Stanland. And Stanland is all about, uh, I don't know, Stan means land in like Kazakhstan language and it's all about land land and there's a lot of land and that's the world see I just made that up it's so easy guys and it's also fun because you can mess around with it and you can warp the world into something that is perfect for your story and instead I had to come up with pretty much just picking up where the plot left off of the actual Narnia books and I just had to keep writing them and it felt like a job and there were some really cool things in there there was some fun to be had um and it was a great excuse to like go back and read all the Narnia books hooray um however <laughs> it was it was uh an experiment that taught me what not to do again and so it's a pretty expensive experiment like I had to spend a lot of time doing that and researching that. Um, but I don't know in the end, like if you are pursuing your hobby, you're just having a fun time, no matter whether or not your book is like a critical or financial success, whatever. I, who cares? Who cares? All right. The HMS Terminus, my last, uh, sort of traditional novel that I wrote uh, this year. Actually, I ended up calling it the SS Terminus. Um, I don't know. Titles, who cares? Um, it's about a boat. It's about some dudes on a boat, and they're trying to find this island that some UFOs landed on. And the boat is from the 17th and 18th century, and it's all about kind of piratey vibes. This is, uh, it's another experiment that could have been better. Um, one thing that I went into the book um, not realizing 
was that one of the main cool sources of conflict isn't like the sea battles or whatever, um, but it's about a human being trying to maintain control of a lot of other human beings and just the chaotic mess that that can become. Uh, trying to please all people at all times is never going to work, and you will always have some real bungholes who are trying to mess everything up. And so I think that that would have been cooler to focus on rather than like the mechanics of shipping. Um, there were some cool uh, details about the world uh, that I could have gotten more into. Um, but long story short, one thing I really did like about this book is that you come to learn things about the main character that are shocking. Um, and I think that that's like kind of fun. I certainly sympathize with the main character. I didn't make him this like inhuman beast. Uh, however, he thinks very differently from me. And that is pretty new. A lot of my main characters are sort of me in disguise, or at least have some element of my psyche involved. Um, this guy is definitely a little bit like me, but he's also got some life experiences that just color everything in his world. Um, I once foolishly made a remark like, oh man, oh, you can't like live for money, you know? Like, why are people so about like obtaining wealth? And like the guy next to me is like, well, my family is so poor and where I come from, you know, getting the good life is about being able to provide for your family. I'm like, oh, oh, and so uh, that that's that's a moment that is embarrassing for my privileges sake. However, it did teach me something that's valuable for characters. Some people just come from different places and they have different orientations and priorities and so sometimes you are all about making bank because you were born in a gutter and your mom was a prostitute and she died and you know not gonna spoil anything however um giving my character a very different background from me allowed me to make him different um I didn't give him that background to make him different, but that was the eventual result. And I think that's just really fun. And I'm really excited to uh, really examine my character's biographies and like what that would move them to do. Um, it's happening in Ironclad Nocturne right now, you guys. Uh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. It's going to be a good, good, good finished, really long book, but it's going to take a while. Um, so that's all the books. Um, the author's dozen nonfiction dealio is kind of just doing what I'm doing right now. Just retrospective looking back. Um, I have gone over some of the past podcasts and found some like hot takes that I'd like to revise as well. Um, you learn things, don't you? As the year went on, we discovered new things about the world, about ourselves. Oh, heartwarming adventure stuff. Oh, it's about the journey that we took along the way, guys, not the destination. But we did learn things. And since I'm your teacher and I was teaching things, um, some of the things I said in the past need revising. That's just human. We're all dumb and the more you realize that, the more you can take teaching with a grain of salt 
and be like, oh, I like that, or oh, that doesn't seem right, and so let me investigate that. And so, I don't know. I'm I'm done with the year. Holy cows, Aroonies! I'm done. And this is the weirdest podcast I've ever recorded. I'm just sitting, talking to myself. I'm looking at the waveforms on my Audacity app, which is what I use to record, and it's so weird. I've it's it's like the Matrix. Like I can I can look at this stuff, and I'm like, oh, I can I can see the code. I can see what my ums look like, and I can go back and delete them without even listening to them. It's a weird journey I've been on this year, and you can hear me slowly losing it, um, but at the same time having a good time uh, losing my mind. Uh, it's it's great, and you're great. I want to talk to you guys about some things. Um, there were uh, some people financing this endeavor of mine behind the scenes. Uh, it wasn't much. I lost more money on this podcast than I gained, obviously. But a few people chipped in along the way to really do some awesome stuff. Uh, my buddy Ari, um, who produced some of the first episodes before I learned to do this myself. Um, James, who had some ideas and encouragement to help get this off the ground. Um, Andy, who did uh, our intro and outro music. Rachel, who did my book covers and a lot of the album and whatever artwork we do on this show, um, gave me a lot of great ideas and themes to sort of build my website and stuff. Um, I want to thank my parents and my grandparents and all these folks who really um, took the time to just pay attention to what I was doing um, and give it some help. And these last few episodes have been a little bit, I don't know, when you reminisce about things, you tend to evaluate them. And I think I've been pretty honest over these last few episodes that in my evaluation, you know, some things I was really happy with, really happy with. And I so appreciate everyone who was along with me on this journey this year. But, you know, you're allowed to be sad that some things didn't measure up. And the reason that I can say that is because, like, my life was not destroyed by the shortcomings of this podcast. Goodness. I do sometimes get into the trap of thinking, well, if this show had gone viral and if it had gotten my career into a place where I wanted it to be, you know, then all my problems would be solved and my life would be much better than it is now. Well, guess what, guys? If there's anything I've learned this year... It is that the circumstances and material surrounding your life does have an impact on your overall being. And I'm not going to say that, you know, being miserable is exactly the same as being happy, but being happy is not the only thing. And what I think is valuable about this year, not necessarily in terms of like advancing my career or um, helping you guys out or whatever is just the recognition of the fact that even if had everything gone exactly according to plan and been wonderful and cool, it wouldn't matter not at all if it didn't make me better. And what I mean by that is not like in terms of talent or whatever, but that the levels of failure and success that I encountered this year 
every single one of them gave me the option to either be a good person or a bad person, to become a greater version of myself or a lesser. I certainly did not become better every single time. However, I just want to thank you guys for listening and reading and doing all you do. And the reason is, is that I am an other-focused person. I want to appear a certain way to people. And when I think about, you know, doing a live confession like this and talking to myself and sort of journaling my thoughts, I would never do that just for me. I would never have written all this stuff and recorded all these shows if it was just for me. But it also was for me. The way that you and I have spent our time either on the making or digesting part of this podcast and the accompanying books and the accompanying whatevers I made, you can look at that and put it on your balance sheet and say, oh, I gained this amount of stuff and I spent this amount of stuff and uh, did it come out in the green or the red or whatever it is we call the funds these days, accounting. Um, but there's another way to look at it. And the other way to look at it is that we are living our life. There is very little in our life that we can spend time on that is truly just a waste of time. Like, I did something this year. I didn't just stay in my typical holding pattern where it's just like, oh, I got to get to the next week. I got to get to the next week. Um, I wasn't just fighting my Cocoa Puffs demons. I was doing something. And the only reason that I was doing something is because you guys were doing something. Even if you're just out there listening to this 10 years later, you are important to me. You helped me do this because you are a potentially caring person who would benefit from the words that I've spoken and written and whatever, because you hypothetically do or do not exist. Um, that's why I did something that I think was very constructive. That's why I recorded a podcast and wrote 12 books. It's because I can't see the future and I don't know who all benefits from this, but I know there's not much to lose. If one person listened to this and, you know, went out and became something better for it, that was worth it. We, um, we live in a world where we are brought up under the watchful eyes of the uh, titans of industry and art and philosophy and thought, um, the giants of science and uh, technology and the mega celebrities of the cultural sphere. We are inundated with these people so much that that seems what life is about. It's about becoming one of those people and becoming the influencer. And there's nothing wrong with that so long as you take scale into account. If you're just influencing your child or um, your classroom or your friends, if you are being 
influenced by me right now, I don't care if it reaches a million people. My scope used to be, oh, it's either everyone or nothing. And certainly, the more people who listen to this, the more are potentially reached by it. However, I didn't make this for everybody. I made it for you, who has stuck out a um, considerable portion of your listening and headspace to listen to me today. If there are 20 people out there who really care about what I did this year and really had a positive effect by it, that's just a great start. Don't think you've failed because you didn't reach every single human being on the planet, you know? And as I say that, that sounds absurd, but we do have a number in our heads where it's like, oh, if I reach this many people or if I, you know, were to change this many people, then my life would have some sort of greater meaning. Which, again, is absurd. If all people don't necessarily need to listen to your stuff, then at some level, the numbers must not matter. At some point, you have to get rid of your savior complex and just say, I saved one person, or I helped one person, or I noticed one person, and that was infinitely better than nothing. I know several people listening to this who this podcast just means the world to them when they're able to listen to it. Not because it's especially good, but because they are especially affected by just the fact that it's me and the fact of what it is that I am and am doing. So remember that as you go out to achieve this year. Even if you do the very bare minimum, if you're just you and people care about you and care about what you're doing, then do something doesn't have to be the best it can just be you and they'll love it and you'll say in the back of your mind oh they just love it because they like me as a human being or oh they you know they're my family they're, they have to like it well yeah but that doesn't mean they don't like it if all you do for the rest of your life is entertain your friends and family that's what artists were doing for tens and thousands of years before we got here before the invention of, like, mass communication, that was it. And it was enough. Just because there's something bigger out there, and just because, you know, you think, oh, I would rather be impressive to strangers, why? If you can make somebody happy who's right next to you, go and do it. It really does not matter if there's some sort of like cosmic uh, rating system out there who's like, oh, this person is more skilled than this person. If you take into account uh, the lack of personality or whatever, who cares? Who cares? If what you do makes somebody happy or contributes to them, you know, becoming a better person, just do it. If you're going to broadcast, you know, don't worry about how broad your cast is. Just cast. All right, that's been the podcast. I'm wrapping up now. Ugh, you know what I haven't done all this year? This is New Year's Day, by the way. It is technically a holiday. What am I doing? Why am I not just taking a break and being a complete bum? That's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to eat a whole thing of ice cream and I'm going to just fall asleep early and wake up late. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. I'm 30 years old, baby. I can do what I want. You can't stop me. Will this be the last of the long outros where I just ramble on? It's become a thing at this point. And maybe I should just do a whole show about this. About just trying to end the show and not knowing how to end it. You know, I, I have I have honed my uh, riffing skills at this point. I could probably do it. I could probably do another hour of this. You are probably listening to the beginning of an hour of riffing. Here we are, and this is what the show is now. And I can just keep going, and at some point it will become funny because it's bad and it's absurd how bad it is. It's Family Guy, baby! Uh-oh. All those Family Guys are gonna come after me. That's what they call the fans of Family Guy. They call them the Family Guys. And they come to your house, and they say, Hey! Hey, it's me, Peter! <laughs> I'm... I modeled myself after Peter Griffin! Me! Lois! Yeah, Lois. Yeah.